All right, can you guys hear me? All right, first of all, it's uh, really good to see you all. It's uh, not an easy week for the Jewish people, to put it mildly. A um, lot going on here. <clears throat> and we got the sense that a lot of you are feeling very distant, uh, struggling with what's going on, and we thought maybe it'd be a good idea just to talk a little, share some divrei chizuk with you. Um, you know, in terms of the what's been going on in Israel and, you know, where we're at, um, I, just as an example, I spent uh, pretty much the whole day yesterday ferrying back and forth gear to to different army units. Uh, I'm putting aside, by the way, some of the questions that come up from all of this. Um, our son Yair, who's an officer in Orev and an elite uh, paratrooper unit, is was called up. Uh, our son-in-law, Eliel, which means that his wife and kids, obviously, he's away, also headed uh, into harm's way in the south. Also an officer in an elite unit in the paratroopers. Um, she's a doctor, so that makes life complicated. Uh, three of my nephews are in the army. Um, we have over 30 alumni, I'm sure boys that you all know, um, that are currently in different units in the north and in the south. Um I live in a neighborhood, I've been here since, oh gosh, almost 30 years. Uh, so we're a very, very close street. That's a small neighborhood of about 20 families. Uh, every single one of us has kids in the army, but every single one of us. So you can imagine that that creates a certain intensity. Uh, the general modus operandi in these types of situations is that people put aside the questions. How could uh, the Israeli army have been caught unprepared? Why are their materials missing? I'm happy to talk about it at the end because I think most of this is really going to be a Q&A. Um, let me open up the chat just so I uh, have it here. Um, but uh, really it's about what's going on, what the larger picture is, maybe even what we can do. You know, this week is uh, we begin again. This is, you know, Winston Churchill has that famous line, this is not... The end, this is not even the beginning of the end. This is the end of the beginning at the end of the Battle of Britain, which was one of the tide changers and turners in, in World War II. So this week is really the end of the beginning. We start uh, the Torah all over again. We read Parshat Breshit. And, um, and so what you do during this week has the sense and the smack of beginnings. Um, how you begin the year um, creates an energy for that entire year. And, uh, you know, that raises obviously a question. If if this is how we're beginning the year, this doesn't bode well for what the year is going to be. Um, but there is a flip side to this story. Some of you may get, be getting a sense of this either from friends and family or here or videos that are going viral and the like. But, um, you know, Americans tasted a little bit of this <coughs> after 9-11, the sense of putting aside our differences, you know, being able to sort of take a step back and realize how we've allowed ourselves, when I say ourselves, I mean the entire country, <clears throat> to get into all sorts of arguments and debates that are just not as important as think people think they are. To be able to focus on, you know, the bigger picture, put aside our differences, come together ha has been remarkable. And so that's the flip side of everything you're reading. Um, the um, one of the stories in this week's parsha is the story of Cain and Hevel. 
Cain and Abel. And I debated preparing a sheer, you know, lumdus, whatever. I don't think that's what you guys need now. I certainly didn't need to be doing that over the last day, even though I, I really, I managed to get to the base matters and I write the last night for an hour. Um, the story of Cain and Abel is a fascinating story. Sure, yeah? Vinny? Yes. Would you mind please recording? I am already. I am. I'm on, I'm recording on my phone. Um the uh, um the um the story of Cain and Hevel is is a fascinating story precisely because it makes no sense. Um first of all the Torah does not tell us what they're arguing about. Right? Adam knew even a biblical sense, right? Knowledge is all about relationships. Uh, so she gives birth to Cain and then continues to give birth to Hevel. So the rabbis tell us, therefore, that Cain and Hevel, Cain and Abel, were obviously twins. Vahi um, and Cain was a farmer, right? Vahi Cain Vahevel, right? Hevel had sheep. He was a shepherd. Um, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, there's no, they argued, you know, the story of Yosef and his brothers, you, you see this developing. Right, they hate him. Right, Yosef brings the tattletales to his father. The father Yaakov gives him a technicolor coat. There's a lot of signs that something's going south. Nothing, right? All of a sudden, right? And Cain says to Abel, his brother, it was when they were in the field. And Cain rises up against Abel, his brother, and he kills him. It's an unbelievable pasuk. First of all, it's grammatically incorrect, right? It was when they were in the field and and Cain said to his brother Abel and rose up against him and killed him. It, 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 the object of the sentence is missing. What, what did he say? And if it's not so important what he said, why does the Torah tell me that he said something if it's not going to tell me what he said? So I've always felt that what the Torah is trying to communicate, whenever you see an obvious anomaly like that, there's a message there. And I wonder if what the Torah is trying to tell us is, it doesn't matter what Cain said. If one brother could rise up against another brother and kill him, then what's the difference what they were arguing about? There's something at the root of argument that makes no sense. The Medrash, by the way, rabbinic legend, fills in this picture and says that, Cain was a farmer and Abel was a shepherd, so they agreed to split up the world. And Cain said he'll take all the land, and Hevel said he'll take all of the perishables. And one day they get into an argument, and Cain says to Hevel, You're walking on my land. And Hevel says, Well, you're wearing my clothes. So Cain says to Hevel, So fly, right? You're walking on my land. Right? So Hevel says, Go naked. And the Gemara says, That's what they were arguing about, the, the Medrash. So that's ridiculous. What kind of an argument is that? These are the sons of Adam Arishon. These are, I mean, they were one step removed from the creation of the world. They're, they're, they must have been giants. How could they argue about... I wonder if what the Medrash is saying is that at the root of an argument is always something illogical. There's always an aspect to it. That if one, if a group of people can come into over 30 different towns and do what they did, there's no logic to that. That's pure, raw, unadulterated evil. Pure and simple. Or as your president said, full stop. 
which was an impressive speech, by the way. And, and you kind of wonder whether this story of Cain and Hevel is placed at the beginning of the Torah so that as part of the blueprint of how we need to create healthy society, we need to understand that there is something illogical at the root of conflict when it gets to a certain point. It doesn't mean that a conflict is always illogical. It just means if one human being can murder another, then something's wrong. So whatever else happens, part of our question here is, what is this all about? I mean, any religious, deeply thinking Jew, and obviously this isn't a new question, this is just the the way in which it's arising today, something's got to be wrong. You know, I remember in the disengagement, right, the Hitnatkut, it was a terrible, terrible time. Not even closely, remotely related to what we're going through now, but on its own level at its own time, you know, 20,000 soldiers were called up to evacuate or expel, depending on your political perspective, 8,000 Jews who were living in towns and villages in what is today known as the Gaza Strip. Put aside the politics, put aside the debate, correct, incorrect, we could talk about that. I actually have very strong opinions on that, which at the end of this, if you want a QA, and a I'm happy to discuss. But if 8,000 Jews can be taken from their homes by 20,000 Jewish soldiers, something's wrong. And I was struggling with it. A lot of us were struggling with it. It was so sad. It was a portion of Eretz Israel, And, you know, the Nitziv, the, the, the Rosh Hashiva Valajan says that when we experience Sinat Chinam, when we experience hatred one of another for no apparent reason when there's something at, 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 illogical at the root of how we're expressing ourselves towards each other, fellow Jews, then this causes, he says this quite directly and very specifically in his introduction to Sefer Breshit, which is this week's Parsha, so it's worth reading. It's a one-page document at the beginning of the Parsha. He says it causes harisat yishuv haaretz, a destruction of the settlement of the land. And I remember seeing that and saying, well, that's exactly what this is about. And I remember that during the Hitnat Kut, during the disengagement, there was a news reporter. Some of you probably heard me share this at some point, but there was a news reporter who was looking for something interesting, a little spin. You know, it was getting boring. Another person evacuated, another person crying, another soldier. So he went to the beach in Tel Aviv. In the middle of the Hitnat Kut, while all this is going on, and there are people just sunbathing. And so he started interviewing people. What do you think about the disengagement? Do you think we should get up, give up the towns and villages of Aza? What should we... And I remember there was an interview and there's some girl, she's in a bathing suit and she's on the news and she says, what's the Hitnat Kut? Like, what is that? Which was unbelievable to me given how much it was in the news. And he said, well, you know, they're pulling out of the settlements of, of, of Gush Katif. He says, do you know where Gush Katif is? And she couldn't tell him where Gush Katif was. And I remember thinking to myself, well, that's the problem. The Hitnat Kut to be disengaged, we're minutakim one from another. We, we're totally... We've become different tribes. We're disconnected. So Hashem said, you're so disconnected, I'm going to show you disconnection. Now, just to be clear, I don't have the copyright on what Hashem is thinking. And I don't have the copyright in saying I know why things happen or what they happen. But I do have the ability to say, I can decide what I'm going to learn from this. Right? The Gemara in Brachos, the Talmud says, Yisurin and Dafhei, Yisurin over in Aladam, Yepashbeish Bamasav. When travails, when a person experiences travail, he needs to go through his actions. There's something to learn. We need to think about this. This is not necessarily the time to do that here in Israel, but it's definitely something worth thinking about. So, what is this all about? What at the root of this is, is and I wonder, by the way, as an aside, one of the dangers that 
that exists when dealing with hatred, anti-Semitism, is that we try to make sense of it. We try to come up with a logical theory as to why this is happening. Now, the reason I think that's dangerous is because if you think you understand logically why anti-Semitism is happening, well, then you can figure out a way to fix it. You could say, here's the logic to why they're doing this. As long as we figure that out, then they'll stop hating us. 2,000 years of history have shown us that's just not true. And I don't hate non-Jews. I, I don't even hate Hamasnikim. I, I think hatred is giving in to your base desires. They're, they haven't earned the right for me to waste my energy hating them. That's not what, I don't think that's what Jews are supposed to do. But, but, but putting that aside, if you understand that there's something illogical at play here, then you can start to look at the bigger picture. Now, what does this have to do with Simchas Torah? They're calling this here, this, I mean, they've given it a name, uh, I don't know, the iron, I, I forget, I haven't gotten used to reading it yet. But, but, you know, a lot of people here are calling it the Simchas Torah War. We had the Yom Kippur War, this is the Simchas Torah War. And just like the Yom Kippur War, we had to ask ourselves, what does that have to do with Yom Kippur? So you have to ask yourself, what this has to do with Simchas Torah? Now, in order to understand Simchas Torah, you have to understand Sukkot. So here's three minutes on Sukkot, Simchas Torah, and the relationship between them. What is Sukkot all about? Sitting in this booth, going outside our house. You know, it's interesting. We read on Sukkot the Megillah, the scroll of Kohelet, right? You could not pick a more, a more bizarre book to read on Sukkot. Sukkot is the festival of joy. Right? We're supposed to rejoice. Okay? And, and Kohelet is the most depressing book in the entire 24 books of, of Kitvei Kodesh. I mean, Hevel Havalima Kol Havel, it's all nothing. Tov Yom Mavet Miyomi Valdo, the day of death is better than the day you're born. Sof Davara Kol Nishma, everything in the end, it gets heard, it doesn't matter. So the rabbis actually debate whether this is a holy book or whether there's too much cynicism and potential heresy. And they say that because the last verse, or basically the last verse of Sefer Kohelet is Sof Tavara Kol Nishma, in the end, all you know is that you should be in awe of Hashem, bet mitzvotav shamor, and keep His commandments. Well, what is Kohelet about? I mean, Kohelet seems to be all about death. It's a book about death. In fact, I'll tell you something interesting. One of the names that we give to Sukkot is Chag Ha'asif. Okay, the book of, of the gathering. And what does that mean? Why is it called the book of the gathering? Because, because, we gather in the harvest, right? Does anybody know, you can put it in the chat if you want, does anybody know where else we find the concept of asif in the Torah? What does that word remind us of? Anybody remember? Asif? Oh, Harvot Barzal, right, that was it. Asif, vaye asif elamav. When Yaakov dies, right, when many of the Avot died, say they were gathered unto their people. Asif is a word for death. So Sukkot on a certain level is a festival of death. In fact, it's interesting. When I was preparing a, a class over Sukkot, and I went on the internet to look things up, and you ever have the experience where you, you, you're looking something up and something strange pops up on Google? And, and you don't get like, what does that have to do with what I was looking for? So I, I'm a curious person. If I have a minute, I'll always take a look to see what it's about. So one of the things that popped up was a, 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 an article about Halloween. What does Halloween have to do with Sukkot? So I looked down into the article and I found that Halloween is actually has its sources, it's, it's a pagan festival, in, in harvest festivals. 
And Sukkot is considered in the Christian world, right? The uh, festival of the tabernacles is called a harvest festival, which I guess makes sense. And in the Christian world or the pagan world, harvest festivals have a lot to do with death. Because you bring in the harvest, there's nothing left growing in the fields, things die, the leaves fall off the tree. It, it's, it's, it's the festival of ending. And that's what Kohelet is. Kohelet says that this world ends, life ends, people end, it all ends. Which is the meaning of Sukkot. Sukkot is all about the fact that this world is temporary. It's so temporary. You think your full granary is what gives you meaning in life? It's here today and gone tomorrow. Go sit in a booth which you know is temporary. Remember, this life is temporary. So if this life is temporary, if nothing physical lasts, well, that's a little depressing. And yet Sukkot is the festival of joy because the, the answer to the begged question of Sukkot is then what in this life is really real? Simchat Torah. Torah. The recipe from Hashem and how to live a meaningful life. That's what's real. That's what lasts. And if we get too stuck in all the things that are meant to be temporary, that are meant to be the means to an end rather than the ends, Torah is meant to remind us what really matters in this world. And as we become more distant from Torah, then we begin to lose sight of what really matters and what's meaningful, etc. And we get caught up in this race to, to make things that are temporary into meaning. I'm not, by the way, I don't think that, uh, that Judaism is, a, is an ascetic culture. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't earn money, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't build our homes, and it doesn't mean we, we can't have a nice Shabbos table. Rabbi Yehuda Nasi was one of the wealthiest Jews in the world. It just means we have to think about what's the purpose behind it all. Why are we doing these things? If we get caught up in, in, in getting the right internship and getting the right consultancy job so that we can earn the right salary, so we can have the big house, so that we can make more money, and it all becomes about that, then we've missed the point of what life is all about. You know, who you are is not what you have. Who you are is what you give, right? So I wonder about that. And I'm not proposing any responses here, but I wonder about that in the context of this war. Maybe we need a reset, Maybe we need to start rethinking what's really important, what's really valuable in our lives. Why are we here? Where are we going? How do we as a society in Israel and how do we as a Jewish people put the pieces back together to make the puzzle mean something different? And, and I'll tell you one last thing and then I really, I really want to open up the floor to what's ever on your mind um, for as long as you want. Um, you know... There are a number of different emotions that, uh, that are brought to the fore during these events. Anger, anxiety, sadness. Um, these are normal emotions and it's understandable, but it's worth understanding where these come from, why these are here, and what you do about them. You know, if you're a friend of mine, somebody that some of you might know, but I'm not going to mention names on, until these things are well published, but... Uh, a friend of mine has a son who's injured and a son who's missing. And I haven't been able to get a hold of him because for the last day and a half after he got the news, like he's been, I'm sure, bombarded. And, uh, you know, that has to make you sad. You know, a, a, a good friend of my wife's from college who we're like acquaintances in Renana lost his son. Uh, the funeral was yesterday. I wasn't able to make the funeral because of stuff that I was doing uh, with the troops yesterday. But... Um, you stand at a funeral like that, you have to feel sad, you have to feel pain. Should you feel anger? Now, I have a pretty strong opinion on this. You can definitely agree or disagree. 
I don't think anger is ever a good thing. Um, you know, some of you have heard me, most of you have probably heard me talk about how I struggled with anger at a certain point when I was in the army and finally let go of it. Um, anger is not a good emotion to take with you. The Rambam in Hilchot says very clearly, it's an extremely bad character trait. It's a useful tool to combat fear. It's not a healthy tool to combat fear. You know, if you use anger to combat fear, it'll get you through the door. It'll get you up the hill under fire in moments that are terrifying, but then you're going to be left with all this anger. And that's not a good thing. Um, I was listening to a, a I was on, I, I did a lot of driving yesterday. I was bringing supplies that are missing to different troops and whatever. It's a whole story in and of itself. So I had time to listen to the radio and I was, you know, usually I listen to podcasts. I just felt a need to hear what's going on and feel. And there was a, a, a woman who was interviewing a few people. Um, Rav Levanon, who's a, a well-known Rav in uh, a large yeshuv in the Shomron. I forget who the second person was. And the third was a professor, Chaim Be'er. And um, the, the reporter said, I have so many questions. And the, 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 as I understood it, because I missed the beginning, the title of this was, you know, let's come together. Let's take someone who's a rabbi who's very right-wing views, someone who's a professor who's a very left-wing views, someone in the middle. Let's just all sit together and talk. We need to talk. And so she asked the rabbi, she said, look, I have many questions, but instead of me asking you a question, why don't we start with you? What do you, what do you want to share? What do you want to say? So he said, look, the only thing I think that's important now, we've spent the last year fighting each other and arguing with each other and becoming so divided. And our enemies have been watching this. We need to come together. Let's put aside our differences. There'll be time to come back and debate them. Let's focus on the positive. Let's think about how we can love each other more and talk to each other more fine. And the second fellow gets on the airway, this uh, professor, I, I don't know him, he's a well-known author. Um, and he said, I have only one thing to say. So the Prime Minister, Bibi Netanyahu, he's uh, responsible for all this and he should resign. And I don't think there should be a security cabinet with him and how could this happen and the, whatever. So, you know, and, and, and all the people who've been doing this for years and the settlements, and you can imagine. And, um, and then he hung up the phone. He was really angry, hung up the phone. So they thought that he was disconnected. So the woman, that the reporter, sort of reached out. They were trying to call him back. She said, I think he got disconnected. Let's see if we can get him back on the line, whatever. She came back, uh, sounded somewhat embarrassed. She said, he says that he had no idea that you were going to be on the show, and he refuses to talk to you, and he doesn't want to be on the show, and he said his piece, and he's done. And the rabbi said, look, he, he's in a lot of pain. You know, Ko'evlo, he's in pain. And the reporter said, no, he's not in pain, he's angry. And the rabbi said, no, no, that's anger that comes from pain. And we need to come together and to sit together and, and to love each other and I understand them. And I was, and I was just, I, it made me so sad that even in a situation like this, people, some people just feel they can't talk to each other. And so I wonder if that, that's the tikkun that's going on now. You know, people have put aside their differences. I'm going to spare you descriptions of some of the images I've seen. You can find them on your own. Anger comes from the perception that we're out of control. It comes from fear, but fear is also about not knowing, about being out of control. You're in a traffic jam for two minutes, you don't get angry. You're in a traffic jam for six hours, you have no idea when you're getting out of it, and you start to get angry. It's not the catalyst, the, the, the rally or the riot or whatever that makes you angry. It's the fact that you have no control and, and you don't understand why this is happening. And so there's a risk that we become angry. 
How could human beings do this sort of thing? Don't fall into that pit. There's no value to that pit. It doesn't produce anything valuable. It's not who we are. And if we could really know, I mean, if we could really know, you know, it's interesting. There's a Gemara in, in, in Avodah Zarah, the Talmud in Avodah Zarah on the third folio, on Tav Gimel and Aleph, says that, uh, you know, Mashiach comes, the end of the world comes, and all the Jews who believed, etc., they're getting all this reward. And the nations of the world, it's obviously an allegory, come to Hashem and say, we didn't know any better. If we'd known any better, we would have done mitzvahs too. So Hashem says, well, whoever doesn't prepare right, an Erev Shabbos will have no food on Shabbos. Like, don't come to me now. Like, you should be cooking during the week. You can't cook on Shabbos. And Rashi says, Shabbos is the world to come and the week is the... But Hashem says, but you know what? I'll tell you what. Mitzvah achat kala yeshli. I have one really easy mitzvah in my hands. I'll give you this mitzvah. Anybody remember what mitzvah that is? Think about it, 613 mitzvah. You want to test the non-Jews, give them an easy mitzvah, see if they'll do it. What would you pick? You'd pick mezuzah. Maybe you'd pick tzitzis. No, he says usukashmo, the mitzvah of sitting in the sukkah. Okay. So miyad immediately, which is how it's supposed to be. They All the, all the nations of the world build booths on their rooftops. And they build a sukkah. Umiyad and Hashem, koder, Hashem broils the sun so that the greatest heat wave ever, right, is heating up these sukkot. And the non-Jews walk out of the sukkah in disgust, kicking the sukkah on their way out. And that's the end of the story. So there's two obvious questions here. The first question is, that's the mitzvah you pick. Why dafka the mitzvah of sukkah? Why is it building a sukkah that is sort of the way to measure whether or why the nations of the world missed the opportunity to... And, and why does the Gemara tell me that they kicked it on their way out? And by the way, it's interesting. We have a very specific halacha when it comes to Sukkot. Okay? There is a halacha that if you're a mitzvah, if a person is suffering, struggling, you know, in travail, then you have no obligation to sit in the sukkah. Right? If it's raining, right? And many of us will at least make kiddush in the sukkah, but if it's raining, right? In Israel, it almost never rains on Sukkot because this is where we're supposed to be celebrating Sukkot. But I remember growing up in New York, every year there'd be a night. Sometimes it was the worst. It was the first night when you, and it would start to pour and the rabbi would be there with his hat making kiddush with the few tzaddikim and everybody else would go inside the dining room. And there's no reason to be in a sukkah. In fact, uh, some of the Farshim say anybody is, who, who, who stays in the sukkah when it's raining is a ksil, he's a fool. Because you have no need to be in a sukkah when it's, when it's raining. I remember when I was in, in Florida for three years on Shlichut, in Pokeratan, the first year we built a sukkah, you know, you have your house and you sit. Like I have a sukkah, it takes me an hour to put it together because it's measured, it fits our house. But here I'm renting somebody's house. I had to figure out from scratch how to build a sukkah. And we put all this effort in and we built this sukkah and it had to stand, had to be a freestanding four-wall sukkah because the housing association wouldn't let you attach anything to the house. It looked like you're building, there's a little anti-Semitism there. Anyway, we're sitting in the sukkah and it was boiling. Now I was smart. I put a fan in the sukkah. Putting a fan in a sukkah in Florida, it, it's, it's like going into the steam bath and having a, a fan. It, it does nothing. So we're sitting there sweating. I'm in my suit on Yantav. So the next year I said, okay, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to do this again. You're, you're, you're mitzvah, you're clearly suffering if you don't have to sit in the rain yet. So I told everybody in my house, we're going to make kiddush in the sukkah, we're going to come inside, don't even set the table out there. And the guests who came to us, they loved this, because we had kiddush and we came into the air because we sat in the sukkah. I get a call from one of the local rabbis who heard, he said, I heard that you ruled that you don't have to sit in the sukkah 
in 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 the heat. I said, yeah. I said, I'm not a posek. I'm not ruling for the community, but that's definitely. He says, you can't do that because if you do that, there there's going to be no sukkahs. They'll have no sukkah. I said, but there's a reason for this halacha. If you insist on people sitting in the sukkah, when the halacha says you don't have to, they're just going to think you're ridiculous for sitting in a sukkah at 90 degrees. It's ridiculous. And we had the, but why are you free from fulfilling the mitzvah of Sukkot if you're mitzvah? Like, you don't see that in other mitzvot. The Rambam very clearly in the laws of Hanukkah says that if, in fact, you have only a coat and the only way you can purchase candles is to sell your coat and it's winter Hanukkah, then you have to sell your coat because that's how important. And that's not even a, a biblical mitzvah. It seems that, that I mean, Steyer is part of the sukkah because, because that's part of the essence of Sukkot. Now, what's interesting, and the reason I raised this, is because Hashem makes the Sukkot so hot. So the Goyim are right. They don't have to sit in the sukkah when it's Steyer. What does it mean they kick it on their way out? I think maybe that Gemara is teaching us that that's what sukkah is all about. The whole idea is that the sukkah is temporary. Why do so many people in the world miss the opportunity to tent, to, to to tap into what's real, to gain olam haba, whatever that means, because they're viewing the temporary as permanent and the permanent as temporary. If, if, if you think that this world is what really matters, then you're not going to understand the sukkah. You're going to be a mitzvah. You're not going to understand. That's the whole message of Sukkot. If we could really know that this is all temporary, this situation is temporary, Hamas is temporary, it's all temporary, this world is temporary, we're going to be reunited with the souls of all those that were here, that will be here, that are here one day. That emunah, which is one of the 13 principles of faith of the Rambam, is a bracha that we say at the beginning of Shemonestri every three times a day. If we could really own that, then we wouldn't get angry about these. We wouldn't need to be in control because we know that the feeling that we're in control is an illusion anyway, which is why that's such a terrible midah. So I think, just to put this all together, this isn't the time to think about why this happened. This isn't the time to think about who did what wrong. This is the time to think about the families who are struggling with wounded soldiers and civilians in the hospitals, to be there for the families that are in pain because they don't know what happened to their loved ones. They're still working on this for very good reasons. Um, to be with those of us who are about to enter a period of very difficult uncertainty. I mean, I've been through this before. You know, uh, my son-in-law, my son, my nephews, all my neighbor's kids, they're all going to go off the grid. They're going to enter wherever they're entering and they're going to have no phones <clears throat> and we're not going to be in touch with them and we're not really going to know what's happening or where they are. And, uh, you know, everybody's going to be nervous that some delegation of soldiers in green is going to show up at, in, the, in the neighborhood parking lot, God forbid. And that uncertainty gives rise to anxiety, gives rise to fear. But if you could know really know that Hashem runs the world, that this is part of a much bigger picture, and that the birth pangs of, 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 of Mashiach are the things that we're experiencing, and I don't know how this is going to, and where this is going to go. I have my predictions in terms of the practical issues of Hamas and Iran, but, um, but knowing that somehow there will be light that comes out of this tunnel, that's the first thing we need to feel. And the second is, how can we contribute to that light? How can we make a difference? Don't underestimate the power of the group standing on this, on this Zoom call. 
There are families in America all over the place who have kids that are in the army now. I cannot begin to imagine. You know, you can only imagine how many hours I've been spending on the phone with parents, Zooming with parents, etc., who are very nervous because their kids are in yeshiva 6,000 miles away. Can you imagine what it's like for a family? I watched my mother go gray the summer that my brother and I were both in Lebanon, and it wasn't this type of a conflict. So find a family that has a kid over here, you know, whether it's a kid in yeshiva or it's a kid, go talk to them. Say, you know, I was in Israel for the year. Maybe you're nervous about your kid. Let me talk to you. Let me help you. You know, find a family that has a kid in the army. What can I do for you? Um, along with all the usual, you know, their, their boys being called up, trying to get on flights, going to the airports. I read a, a piece that there was some Orthodox fellow, a um, firm-looking guy. This, by the way, came to the news here through an LL counter. LL people reported this. And he was just standing near the counter and people were showing up and they had to show a draft order to get on the flight. And this guy just started paying for people's tickets. As soon as he saw that someone was going back because he was drafted, he paid for that ticket. He said the fellow paid for 250 tickets before he walked away. We don't know who he was. Unbelievable. So most of us don't have the ability to pay for 250 tickets. And we might not even want to pay for one ticket. But we can pay for a banana for somebody. We can help boys out, etc. Think about those things. Um, if anybody here is struggling, I think in certain ways, if you're far away, it makes it more difficult. Um, I would, by the way, make a suggestion to you. Um, I have a couple of sources pretty high up in the army. I'm obviously not going to delineate them here on, a, on an open Zoom. But um, there's a, a, a shmua going around the airwaves that he said is actually a real... Um, anticipation of the of, of some of the security forces and cyber warfare that um, they've compromised uh, phone accounts and the like and that they're planning on sending out very very difficult videos of hostages begging for their lives and all sorts of things on TikTok and on Instagram take them off your phones just don't watch that stuff for the next couple of weeks there's no value to sitting in America and becoming stressed watching this you can feel empathy for the Jewish people without seeing those types of Don't hand that victory to them. Um, And uh, be spokespeople for Israel. This is such an easy case to make in any circle. You know, if if you encounter people who are, you know, having an issue with Israel, learn in life that there are two groups. There's the person who's the diehard fanatic brain. It's just a waste of time to engage with them in discussion. But there's a very, very large middle group that's open to hearing what's going on. There's actually a window of opportunity because the case here is so clear and it's valuable to make that case. So that's a little bit of food for thought on what's going on here. I didn't really talk much about, you know, things going on on the ground. I'm happy to do that. Um, to everybody who, you know, I wanted to keep this to half an hour in case people need to leave. Um, but, uh, you know, it means a lot to us that you're all out there and that you're thinking of us. And, you know, we feel very connected to Araita wherever you are. I've been getting some unbelievable emails and, and, and WhatsApp texts from people about it, right, the boys? So thank you for all of that, and thank you for everybody who called in. And now I'm, I'm happy to, um, to answer, you know, if you have any questions, um, really with pleasure, or you need me to talk about anything. I'm all in. I'm, I'm curious, actually, what... Um, what you're thinking, what you're feeling. So you can put that in the chat if you want to. Because I, I know what people here are feeling. I'm not quite sure what it feels like to be 
a student or you know young adult on on a campus. Uh, I see there are actually some older adults like me, Baruch Hashem, on the line. But um, what that feels like to be so far away from Israel, that must not be easy. So do you have any questions about what's going on, about where this is going, about why this is happening on a practical level? I'm happy to talk about that if you want. Although I'm going to turn off the WhatsApp here.